It's poverty. It's crime. Unemployment. Corruption. Accountability. The energy crisis. Inflation. We are worried. That South Africa has myriad problems on all fronts is a given. But the time has come for us to look for real solutions. I'm Jeremy Maggs, and this MoneyWeb podcast will discuss those solutions on how South Africans can solve problems by having tough conversations and drawing on the insights of South Africa's top business leaders. Welcome to Fix SA. A very warm welcome to Fix SA, MoneyWeb's fortnightly podcast dedicated to exploring innovative solutions for South Africa's myriad growing and mounting challenges. Now, Jonathan Shapiro, better known as Zapiro, is one of South Africa's most renowned cartoonists and social commentators. And his thought-provoking cartoons have been a powerful tool for highlighting and addressing critical issues in this country. Let me tell you, the man does not pull punches. Now, in this edition, I want to deviate slightly from the norm. I want to examine the power of cartooning and satire in fixing South Africa's problems, I guess, in identifying them as well, and more broadly, how he believes we can make things better. How do we improve matters? How in the shortest space of time can we become a competitive and successful nation? It's something that we all want. My name's Jeremy Maggs. As always, thank you so much for downloading the conversation. Jonathan, it is so nice to welcome you to this program. Let me start with this. Your cartoons have been praised uh, and sometimes criticized for their ability to shed light on important issues while using humor and satire. My first question to you, how do you believe those two devices can contribute to identifying and maybe even fixing just a few of the problems that we face? You know, the word fixing is a tough one because one doesn't want to kind of overreach. I think that as a cartoonist, I'm a, I'm a commentator, I'm a satirist, I'm somebody who knocks people off pedestals, somebody who starts conversations, someone who joins conversations. The idea of actually fixing using cartooning or almost anything else is perhaps a bit of an overreach. I think what what one needs is a a civil society and media kind of working together with whatever other progressive forces that one can find in society to combine in that conversation, to actually obviously to do things. But if you think about the fact that I'm sitting at a drawing board, I'm not an on-the-ground activist the way I used to be. Mm. So I'm mostly sitting at a drawing board and trying to tap into those things, trying to have an influence on them and see how to shift things, how to shift those people who are in some sort of stasis, who who kind of feeling apathy, feeling hopelessness. So I think I do feel that cartooning as that part of media and that part of art and that part of thought, that very specific kind of genre, it's also part of comics, um, has that ability to help people to see things in new ways and to actually get a little bit of humor and a bit of life out of really, really tough situations and and then in that way shift. I mean, there's many more things I can say about the specifics, but that's my sort of general first take on it. I think we're, I'm part of that that thing that can shift the stasis and, and I've found ways in which it, it appears that it does do that. So if you're part of a, of a group, part of a collective, 
in helping identify and at least provoke that thinking, as you say. Do you think that we fail then in our efforts at collegiality, that we don't harness the unified force that we could to do that? Uh, Yeah, you see, also probably in terms of overreach, I don't feel that it's kind of one thing. I'm not trying to say that there is that there's somehow or other there's like one great movement that is being it's a it's a lot of different kinds of movements of different people who have the good of the country and the good of society at heart who are trying to do things. So I think things happen in parts. I mean I think it's no surprise that people the cartoonists have the greatest impact in generally speaking in their small areas when they start out doing things about very specific problems and then they end up also being able to speak about world affairs and all that you kind of think well what actual impact do i have on world affairs but on individual things you know you can poke holes in a politician's words you can poke holes in a corporation's manifesto or what they put out you can show the hypocrisy on a scale where people can say, you are showing that what they're saying today is not what they said yesterday, and what they're saying is not what they do, and I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. So you start off in the micro way. I think that is the way that cartoonists, mm-hmm. that's the way that journalists work best, is to actually look at things around them that they know best, you know, like writers too, who write what they know, write something that is close to home and then join in if you're someone like me as a cartoonist who's not just out to look for the belly laughs but is saying advocacy is where i started from as an activist you want to actually push ideas and communicate and get people to think in different ways i'll tell you jeremy one of the things that is the most exciting thing for me this year i went to um representative of editorial cartooning to Comic Con. Mm -hmm. Comic Con came to Cape Town. It's been in Johannesburg a couple of times. There has been Fan Con, which is a sort of an offshoot, but there hasn't been a Comic Con in Cape Town. This is a first. And I was the only editorial cartoonist there. So I'm kind of, you know, a little bit of fish out of water in that sense. But wow, the one thing that it reinforced, not the first time this has happened, but I just couldn't believe how many times this happened. The youngsters that sounds like an old word to use for young people it's a word from a previous era but i'm talking about 12 13 14 15 16 year olds coming up to me saying i started to understand something about politics looking at your cartoons they put them in the exams at school some of them are in the textbooks sometimes the teachers bring them in sometimes the other kids bring them in they actually talk about these cartoons in history and sometimes are asked about them in exams history English, uh, life orientation, art, economics, various languages, in- English, Afrikaans, Zulu. It's the most gratifying thing. And even beyond that, this is a first for me. Somebody said I was autistic. I was struck by the use of was, mm. uh, the past tense. I know, Are you autistic and then no longer autistic? She, so she was a, a relatively high-functioning autism. But there were teachers who, at the institution where she was, who use the cartoons because they have an element of of kind of body language and expression and that to try and ask her, you know, to read those things and see whether she could actually translate that into actions with people. So there's something about the power of cartoons to actually communicate things succinctly and with body language, with humor, which can help shift things 
for people. And I, I must say, it was a massive reinforcement of that idea, which I've had for a long time. But this was a very powerful one recently. I want to pick you up on two words or two phrases you've just used. One is help change things. The other is um, poking holes in hypocrisy. Mm. If you do enough of that, you Mm. can surely force change, albeit slowly sometimes. And in forcing change, back to the premise of this podcast, you are in a way helping fix things. Look, that definitely is the idea, Jeremy. And in a way, what often happens with cartoons, I've I've also developed this kind of approach to it. On the one hand, you are talking to the people who are your opponents. You're actually trying to attack them, trying to take them down, actually trying to draw a reaction from them. It doesn't happen all the time because a lot of the time they don't want to react. Some of them are so thin-skinned that they will. And then there's a fantastic back and forth, which actually does contribute to their ultimate self-destruction. It's I've seen it, and I can only be a tiny part in it, whether it's Jacob Zuma and the showerhead and the fact that he sued me twice, not specifically for the showerhead, but that he was so angry about the cartoons that he actually commented on them. He actually was pushing his own lawyers to keep on prosecuting these cases well into his presidency. He sued me before he was president. He really didn't like the shower head thing. He certainly didn't like the Rape of Justice cartoon that I did. There were people around him who commented, and it was the first thing they commented on after the Judge Nicholson judgment, the the one that was eventually overturned. It looked like it went in his favor. It looked as if the charges, the corruption charges, which he's still fighting. In 2008, it looked as if those charges would be dropped in order for him to become president. I mean, it was a political solution, but they kind of got this judge to kind of go along with the fact that there'd been a giant conspiracy. So the first thing that his cohorts, the people who were working with him, Bladen Zamanda and Kweda Mantasha, and I'm, I'm afraid Zuelan Zimavavi in those days, and he recanted later, uh, obviously Malema and all they commented on the cartoon. They reacted. So at a grand scale, that can happen. On a smaller scale, I've seen um, one or two examples, just a few of them that I can cite, where you see cause and effect, where a cartoon actually sinks something and makes it so laughable uh, or so outrageous that they can't push that idea anymore. I remember that one of them is with Kulikani Setole, the then prisons commissioner, who wanted to build prisons in disused mine shafts. Mm. And I did his a cross section of his head where, you know, you see the disused mine shaft uh, and, and the proposal for these prisons in these disused mine shafts. And then you see a cross section through his head and it was a disused brain cavity. And the prisoners for human rights were parading this cartoon around in poster sized <laughs> form on TV. And apparently he could never flight this idea anymore because it had totally been debunked by the cartoon. So you see that sometimes from your opponents, the people you're trying to take down, but you also see a kind of a galvanizing in in groups where people start using the cartoons on posters when they're protesting against Shell and the the Sonar survey, when they're protesting against um, gender abuse and a cartoon really hits the mark. So you see a kind of a galvanizing ability. You're talking both to the people who you're really against, but actually more, you're talking to try and somehow communicate something that works for the people whose causes you support. And you do see the cartoons sometimes 
finding that kind of expression where you really can see cause and effect. It's not often that you can see direct cause and effect, but the overarching feeling that I get is that they contribute to those individual little movements that become mm. part of something bigger. You said a moment or two ago that one of the things that people can do engaging either with cartoons or with satire is to see things in new ways. Yeah. What is the ask or what is the relationship between you and the reader, the consumer of your work? Well, here's the thing. When I start a cartoon, I am not looking for a laugh specifically. I'm not looking for, you know, when people say, oh, you, you find all these funny things. To me, humor is just the best and the most powerful of the, the little arsenal that I, I carry in my, in my drawing box or uh, on my drawing page. <laughs> There's, there's shock, there's you know, shock and outrage, there's pathos, there is uh, the, the, just a cerebral shift that I would like people to have as well. And then there, there's humor and there's sometimes, the, you know, rage, all kinds of things like that, that one can draw on in, in communicating that idea. I'm looking to communicate. So I start out with these words, the cerebral part, the shift, the, the change, look, any joke, any humor any satire is actually based on surprise because what one is doing is you're taking the eye and the mind for a walk and you are coming to a different and surprising conclusion which comes very quickly and either makes you laugh or angry or just think oh geez i never thought about mm -hmm. that or hang on a second that's exactly what i did think about but i hadn't found a way to articulate it so that's what i'm looking <clears> for a good cartoon is one that will do that, whichever of those kind of outcomes I, I get from it. And, a, and perhaps a really great cartoon will be one that then does that for so many people that it actually results in some kind of shift. Some critics, and leading on from that, would then argue that satire and cartoons simply oversimplify complex issues and you reduce them to punchlines. How do you respond to that criticism or is, is that the intention in the first place? Um, that's one of those things where I have to give a bit of a nuanced answer because that very phenomenon of being able to simplify and come up with something pithy and something that says something easily and quickly, it's sometimes in a fraction of a second, sometimes in a few seconds, is something that is envied enormously by my colleagues in various other forms of media, especially various forms of print media. I mean, I started out as a print media cartoonists doing things for newspapers mm. primarily and eventually on websites and the cartoons sort of shift and jump genres and all of that and go into the sort of schools or whatever it is. But I started out doing these things in newspapers and there were so many, there'd been so many times when editors and columnists and reporters and all, all kinds of people have said to me, oh, you know, I really envy you guys because, and I say guys, uh, the sort of generic thing, but Unfortunately, editorial cartooning is still overwhelmingly uh, male. There are some great female cartoons, but mostly men. And unfortunately, still there are a lot of comic artists and writers who are females, but the editorials are mostly males. So, but, but they would say, you know, in the you guys, yeah, the people turn straight to the cartoon in the newspapers, in the old hard copy. Uh, many people would first turn to the cartoon to see what is being said there. And also because it's something that is quick and powerful and punchy. And uh, so many editors use that old uh, cliche of, you know, pictures 
worth a thousand words and all of that. And, but at the same time, there's a flip side to that, which comes back to your question. And that is sometimes, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword, or live by the cartoonist pen and die by that pen. Sometimes you are saying something in a way that is so pithy and so succinct because you want to get that point across. There's a huge amount of thinking and other nuances that you think about along the way. And you think, if I add that stuff in, I have a little maxim that I go by often. If it doesn't add, it takes away with a cartoon. So if I add too much, because I want to cover my ass, I want to cover my bases and say, uh, look, I, I actually do understand all those nuances. I do understand. But it can really weaken the cartoon. And then, of course, in the, in the age of social media, that whole phenomenon has become a lot worse because people take things out of context. They take things out of that kind of continuum of the work that you may have done for three decades and perhaps over the last year or the last three weeks. Whatever. They take that one cartoon or one part of a cartoon and tweet that and you are toast because that becomes the summation in people who don't really follow everything or don't want to or are mm. in the echo chambers that's the summation of your thought. You're a racist. You are a uh, somebody who doesn't think through the nuances. You are not woke. You're not this. You're not that. Because of one aspect, you may do a cartoon that says something different the next day. So that is a problem, especially perhaps in the last 15 years. I think you'll probably agree with this premise, but I think at the heart of things, you remain an activist. Um, do you think that we have lost that spirit of intense activism that we saw a decade, two decades ago, or is it manifesting itself in a different way? You know, these things come in waves. I think at the moment things are dire. They really are. Uh, but they have been dire many times before. There were people whose mind and activities and activism and all that was stimulated massively in the period in which I went to university. Uh, I mean, I matriculated in 76. Um, and I remember that uh, being in Cape Town is slightly different from being in Joburg, but certainly things happened there. Uh, and I was very much uh, in support of the students and outraged by the police. And and then there's, you know, Jimmy Kruger and all of that. So thinking back into almost prehistory, I remember all that stuff, Forster and the information scandal and whatever. And there were people who were energized then. People went into student politics, people, you know, sort of privileged middle class people like myself, the white people, black people in, in very different circumstances, middle class, working class, all kinds of people. But something didn't shift for me. I helped a little, I did a little. What really got me going was the formation of the United Democratic Front in 1983, because suddenly I found a sort of a more egalitarian kind of political home. There had been waves of all kinds of activism over decades, and different people got moving at different times. For me, it was then. That period, that 83 onwards for the next five, six years, an enormously stimulating and uh, a lot of kind of on the ground stuff some things that were fairly ground up kind of uh, in the way that they were done and not so authoritarian and you know if you think about the fact that by that time the ANC were either in jail or in exile or deep underground and sort of getting older so there was a movement of kind of younger people and thinking of people who were work, as I was saying right at the beginning, people working on specific issues, people able to work in street committees, all of that. Now, there have been waves of 
creativity and of activism. I mean, during the first period of Mandela's presidency, I think the formation of the new institutions, I think there was a clash between the old authoritarian and uh, stuff and the people who'd come back from exile and, and who were coming out of jail. There definitely was a clash. The UDF structures were dissolved in 91, I think. And that I was very outraged by that already back then. And I felt a little bit in a sort of a political vacuum. I found my activism through the cartoons and in Mandela's era of presidency. And then uh, I saw, you know, by attrition, by all kinds of other forces, I felt other pressures being brought to bear, pragmatism and corruption and all sorts of things. But you find waves. You think, look at the HIV and AIDS stuff that happened in 2001, 2, 3, 4, 5, led by people like Zaki Ahmad, who's now, you know, finding a new life as an independent candidate, that sort of thing. So... I do think that there are currents running through. I don't know whether they're going to lead anywhere. The, the 40th anniversary of the UDF is happening now. Where there are ideas. There's Songhezo Zibi and what he's doing. As I said, other independents like Zaki. Also, I see young people working in different areas. It's hard to read the zeitgeist of everything, but I do think that no matter how dire things are, there are always people doing things. And, and I hope that as long as I'm working in this sort of field, that I can somehow feel that optimism for something and join some of those movements in some way. It's a tough ask, though, because there's so much anger and there's so much despair among certain pockets of optimism. I guess we need a national attitudinal change. We need a different approach as far as leadership is concerned. All of that is very, very difficult to attain. And we're hearing so much talk these days about us either being or close to being a failed state. Do you think, again, with your activist hat on, that we can pull back from this precipice? Uh, you know, I, around about 20-odd years ago, the first time somebody said to me, are we going in the Zimbabwe direction? And I said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. We're not, we're not there. And I've said that so many times. Uh, you know, people have asked that sort of thing. And, I, I've, and I'm, along with everyone else, thinks, is there a possibility? No, I think the institutions are strong and the media is strong and the civil society is strong and there's a, a lot of talent and we have enough of a kind of a, a backbone as a country not to go that way. And I'm afraid then, you know, during the Zuma years, then, you know, you get this guarded optimism around Cyril coming to, to be president. But I'm, I must say I was already a bit jaded on that when even when he took over this new dawn story i had as early as 2012 i've got a cartoon to prove it i did a, a cartoon really debunking the possibility of cyril ramaphosa coming in and being deputy president under zuma and then you know, i basically forecast in 2012 that it would be his utter ruin in 2019 coming to be president after being deputy president under those circumstances and then, I mean, I've, I have this cartoon. It's called The Rake's Progress. And so I was already very, very nervous about where things were going, even thinking through what would happen in the Zuma years and thinking ahead. It's one of the few things I can say I've been a little bit prescient about, but I'm not a fortune teller. But really, I was skeptical. And there was that kind of false dawn where even I, you know, I was saying, well, maybe let's see what can happen, what can happen. State capture report. This damn state capture report has been sitting in parliament for a year. Nothing has happened. The NPA has been so gutted 
by a Zuma's bunch that even with the best will in the world, Ramaphosa can't put enough good people in place to actually get the thing working again to prosecute those cases. Unemployment is so out of control now and inequality and poverty um, and then the ESCOM stuff, which was, you know, really Becky's fault and Becky and Zuma less than Ramaphosa. So, I mean, these things are now and corruption, which was always there, it was there even in the apartheid era and it's been there, it, was, it started during the Mandela era, not that Mandela is responsible for it, but it started then, the new version of corruption. I mean, it is really dire now and I don't know. You know, I'm not going to just be a complete naive flag waver, uh, but I, I have to believe that there are possibilities. Otherwise, I would really just uh, give up and then think, well, what is the point of my doing this sort of work at all? I want to join whoever is doing anything that I think is worthwhile. I just want to ask you one final question, and I want to take you back to that uh, comic festival that you attended, and you spoke about uh, the young person who was on the autism scale. Mm. And you obviously derived a great deal of optimism from that person. So this is a question I put to all the guests on this program as we as we conclude. When you're talking to young people, Jonathan, maybe in 20, 30 years' time, and they are the baton-holding generation, it's all up to them now, what will you tell them about the early 2020s and what they have to do in order to continue building South Africa. And again, with the caveat, and we all hope that there is something left to build. I think some of the things that I've said already are things that I would I would say, first of all, find your passion. Find your passion, your own personal passion, but also have a passion to understand things. Okay, so the, the thing that I do say to people, and I have been saying for a long time when I do speak at schools or when I speak to people who are trying to become cartoonists or anything else, I said, first of all, read. Read. If you're trying to become a cartoonist, if you're trying to become anything else, read because there are things that people have said that will stimulate your mind, particularly in cartooning. It's like the, the ideas are even more important than the drawing. So read and widely and try and find ways to fact check things. If you're reading things that are meant to be uh, <laughs> from the real world, find ways to fact check things. But be passionate about your environment, your surroundings and, and whatever, and find ways to engage in whatever your niche is, whether you are interested in music or science or art or cartooning or whatever it is or writing or anything, find ways where your passion can kind of jive with your surroundings. I mean, that is the way that mm. you will find your way in the universe as meaningfully as possible and you will find that you do have an impact. That And that's what I've been telling people for a long time, I mean, from my little perspective, but I do think that would be the same thing I would tell them if I'm still around in 20, 30 years. I sincerely hope that you are. Jonathan Shapiro, thank you for a very frank and forthright and insightful conversation. Thanks for listening to this Fix SA podcast. For more episodes posted every second Friday, go to moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.